Well, good morning. My name is Evan, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, I have the privilege and the honor to work here at Living Water, and uh, it's a blessing to be able to be here today. Um, But if you would, let's start off with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today, and we thank you for being able to gather together and worship your name. I ask as we are about to walk through your word, where this is a difficult passage, filled with sin and and compromising of truth, Lord. I pray that you will speak to us in the midst of that. That it would be your words and truths that are spoken here today and that we will learn. Father, I pray that if there was anything that would hinder the speaking of your truth today, I pray you would pardon me and allow me to communicate your words today. If there is anything that would hinder the receiving of your truth I pray that you would pardon us in this room and allow us to receive your truth today. Allow us to have ears that can hear, eyes that can see, and hearts to receive your truth. Guide our conversation through your word. I ask this in your most gracious and your most holy name. Amen. So in the spring of 2010, there was a high school senior by the name of Christian. He was getting ready to graduate and move on with his life, and he didn't exactly know where life would take him. He enjoyed writing, but he didn't exactly know what that would look like for him in the future. He looked at a few schools. None seemed like the right fit. And after several months of searching, his parents kind of pushed him into visiting a couple smaller Christian schools. So Christian was looking at Christian schools. Um, And he came to visit a small Christian university uh, outside of Philadelphia named Eastern University. Maybe if some of you are aware of that. Um, And as he visited Eastern, he he got there and he instantly felt at home and he thought that, oh, this is the place that God is leading me to. And then he looked at the price tag and thought, maybe this is not the place God is leading me to. Um, And even though he did apply to Eastern, he uh, kept looking at other schools that maybe were a little bit more affordable for him. And after about two weeks of further searching and finding nothing, Christian, he felt a little distraught as he couldn't find where to go next. And just as he was having those thoughts, he received a phone call from a recruiter from Eastern who offered him a scholarship to attend. Now, he didn't apply for any scholarships from the school, um, but taking it as a sign from God, he quickly accepted and off he went to Eastern. And at the start of that next school year, he walked onto campus to begin this new educational journey. And as this journey progressed, he had to take a few classes that were outside of his major, uh, but were required to graduate. One of those classes was a low-level theology class. And Christian, he was a Christ follower, but he did not have the desire to take a theology class. He was nervous. He had no idea how this would help him in his journey through education and how it would even fit into what he had been learning. But as that class progressed, he he began to enjoy it. He became good friends with the professor, and he ended up taking more of that professor's theology classes. He would often joke and say, well, I'm never going to use what I'm learning here, but I'm glad I can be here. And the professor, he would always answer Christian in the same way. He said, Christian, you never know how God is going to use you to impact the life of another. Towards the end of the school year, Christian was looking at summer jobs, and he ended up talking to a Christian summer camp. Uh, 
and he ended up uh, uh, going to be a summer camp counselor at this particular camp. Um, and as education was his journey, or his major, he thought it would be good experience for him to be able to work with kids during the summer. And so as the summer began, each week he had a different uh, group of elementary age students. He was able to have conversations about Jesus. He was able to teach on the Bible. He really loved it. But about halfway through the summer, he gets put into a junior high camp. And uh, being an elementary education major, he was very intimidated by this. Uh, it was out of his comfort zone, but he went into it with a positive attitude. Uh, but during that week, he quickly noticed that there was one of his campers that, that seemed to be a bit more withdrawn. He decided that his goal for the week would be to encourage that kid and have a conversation about Jesus. And so throughout the week, Christian had many opportunities to encourage that young boy. And by the end of the week, something happened that Christian was not prepared for. During one of these conversations, the boy asked Christian, why during our hard times does God leave us? Why does, not, why does he not care for me? And Christian, he was taken aback from this question from this, this young little middle school boy, and he paused, he had to take a moment to gather himself and gather his thoughts, and he remembered back on the conversations that he has had in that theology class with his professor, and he answered the kid. He, he told this young boy that, that God was never far from us. He was always working, whether or not we seen him, or whether or not he saw him or not. He was working in the background. We may not always know what he's doing, but if you are in need, all you need to do is ask for help. And then listen for how he answers you. Later that, young, or later that morning, Christian was able to pray with that young boy who accepted Jesus into his life. And after that week was over, Christian was able to reflect back on this conversation, and he was blown away by what God did. He remembers back, not knowing where to go. God directed his path to Eastern. He directed him into this, this class that he didn't even want to take with his professor who became a mentor to him. And he remembered that his professor's words of, you never know how God is going to use you to change the course of someone's life. And he was amazed by the goodness of God. I tell you this story today because as we dive into the word, we're going to be seeing how God is orchestrating events to ultimately bring deliverance to his people. We will see how God uses the circumstances of a young Jewish woman to change the course of a nation. And we will ultimately see how, by God's grace, we can also be delivered from sin and ultimately from ourselves as well, and how God uses us to further his purposes. So if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles out. We're going to be in Esther chapter 2 today. Specifically, we're going to be in verses 1 through 18. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one from the tables around the room, uh, or you can use your smartphone if you have it on there, but it will be up on the big screen as well. Uh, but once you get there, if you don't mind standing for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. After these things, when the anger of King Ashuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what, had been, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who had attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. 
And the king appoint, and let the king appoint all officers in all the providences of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under the custody of Hegai the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who please the king be queen. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimi, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem, among the captives carried away from Jeconiah the king, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadashah, that is Esther, the daughter of his young uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken to the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the woman. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her to not make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what had been happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ashuerus, after, the, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months of oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for the women. When the young women went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go to the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, son of, son, or daughter of Abigail, the, daughter of Morde, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. She asked for nothing except for what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who, who was in charge of all the women, had advised. Now Esther was winning favor in all, the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ashuerus in the, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tebeth, in the year, seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all of the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all of the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He had also granted the remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. It's a long story, and we're going to be working our way through it today. But our story opens with this phrase, after these things. On first glance, we might look at this and say, okay, it's, it's after what we talked about in chapter one. It's picking right where we left off with Vashti being removed as queen. However, something that we might miss is that in between chapter one, the end of chapter one, and the beginning of chapter two, four years have passed by. During this time, we see King Ashuerus lead his army, 200,000 men, on hundreds of ships to go and invade Greece. Now, his extensive military campaign into Greece, it ended up failing, and the Persians, they were forced to retreat back to Susa. 
And so this is where we begin this morning. Ashuerus is back in Susa, sitting in the citadel. His anger has calmed. He has been defeated. And he begins to think of the former queen, Vashti. And if you remember from the previous passage last week, Vashti, she was removed as queen due to her unwillingness to be paraded around as the king's most prized possession. And so in chapter 2, we see Ashuerus, he's, he's sitting here almost in this state of remorse over this hasty decision that she had made about Vashti. But this remorse, is, it's not a remorse that leads to repentance. It's ultimately a remorse that would lead to another selfish, selfish decision that is made in the flesh. Enter the king's council of men who are seeking to cheer up the king. They see that he's down in the dumps and they want to cheer him up. And if you remember in chapter one, the king, he didn't have good counsel then. And you would think that he would have fixed that. Uh, but it ends up that he doesn't have good counsel now. These decisions, it, he should have just cleared these up. But instead, this counsel leads him to another poor, poor decision. Listen again to verses two through four. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all of the providences of the kingdom to gather all of the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. So in these verses, we see that these wise men, these, these counselors, they tell him to go and collect the most beautiful women from all of the 127 provinces of Persia. This is a major empire. And, he, and they tell the king, well, go and spend one night with him until you find one that pleases, him, pleases you the most, and then make her the queen. And obviously, it, it evidently, it just it pleased him so much that he was like, go ahead and do it. Move forward with this plan. Now, King Ashwares, he was this man who ruled for his own pleasures. And he, he felt as if something was missing in his life that he needed to fill. His assistants saw this. They looked to fill it with some sort of worldly solution to this. But ultimately, this was not a solution that would ever satisfy. And, and you know, maybe the same is true for us today. Maybe we have a longing for something that we try to fill with, with worldly things to find satisfaction in this world. But let me tell you that even the best things of this world, the best things that the world offers, it can never meet our deepest needs. Never. Scholar Matthew Gilbert, he speaks this to this whenever he says this. When we seek pleasure for the wrong reasons and in the wrong places, it will always evade us. But when we seek pleasure in Christ, we will always find it. So unlike Ashwares, we should desire to seek after God in all areas of our life, not just look for ways to satisfy the flesh. So this is where Ashwares is. He issues this command. And as we continue the story, we, now, we are now introduced to Esther and Mordecai, the, the kind of the main characters of our story here. Listen to verses 5 through 11. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jared, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadasha, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when, the, when her mother and father died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. 
So when the king's order and edict were proclaimed, and when the young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace, put in charge of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and a portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace. And he advanced her and her young women to the best in the harem. Esther had not made it known, her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her to not make it known. And every day Esther walked, or Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So this is a section here where we learn a little bit more about Esther and Mordecai. But we're first introduced to Mordecai. He's described as the son of Jer, also the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, ultimately a Benjamite. The author here, he's letting his Jewish audience in Persia know this guy is a Jew, and he's helping connect with the people. It's ultimately also explaining how Mordecai and Esther ended up where they are. They were the, they were, their ancestors were among those taken in the Babylonian captivity. And we also understand from this passage that, that Esther and Mordecai, their family was one of those who did not return with, Esther, or with Ezra and with Nehemiah when they returned back to Israel. They, they stayed in the land of Persia. We don't know why. Maybe they thought, hey, we've grown up here. This is our home. But they just, we know that they, they stayed where they are at. Then we're introduced to Esther. She is first named by her Hebrew name, Hadesha, which means myrtle. And it was common for the Jewish people in the exile to have like a Hebrew name and a Babylonian name. We see that in Daniel with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their Babylonian names, and then they had their Hebrew names as well. But the author, he's emphasizing that, that Esther here, she is inhabiting two very different worlds. Uh, two worlds that should be very different, but in this story, she lets them kind of coincide with each other and mix. And so we, this relationship between Esther and Mordecai as well, we see is that it, they are cousins. But we learn that Mordecai here, he has adopted Esther um, and cared for her after the loss of her parents. So they're cousins, but it's more like a father-daughter relationship. Now Esther, she is described as a beautiful young woman. And so we shouldn't be surprised that as soon as that, uh, that, that proclamation is made, the story goes uh, from this Esther's beauty to being picked and taken and, and put into the king's palace and ultimately the king's harem as the re result of the decree. But when it says here that Esther was taken to the palace, the word translated here was taken, it really means that it was, she was taken forcibly. She didn't really have a choice in this. There was no, there was no option for Esther. She was going whether she liked it or not. But then we see, how, we see a picture of how God starts to work in this story. Right? God is not mentioned here, but in verse 9, we, we, we see this picture of how God begins to work in Esther's life. The first part of verse 9, it says, And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. At the beginning of this verse, verse 9, we see that, that Esther here, she is winning this, the favor of Haggai. This idea of favor in this passage is key because in here, we will see that Esther's not really doing anything to win the favor of the people that she wins the favor of. It's something supernatural here that's happening. And, and this, whenever it says that Esther pleased him and won his favor, it's reminiscent of Daniel. 
When Daniel was taken in the exile, he, in, in uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it talks about how Daniel was viewed favorably by the Babylonian official. He didn't do anything uh, out of the ordinary. He was viewed favorably. And so we begin to see here how God is working in the midst, allowing Haggai's favor to fall on Esther, who is soon given care, allowed to take a prominent position in the harem, is given the best of care here to advance her. And so by the grace of God, Esther, she begins this path of personal deliverance, even though she doesn't realize it at the time. And this personal deliverance will ultimately lead to deliverance for the people of God, all because it started with her winning favor of this one person. Now, we come to a very interesting part of the story after this, where Mordecai instructs Esther to not make her kindred known, not make her people known. And we don't know why this is the case. Maybe Mordecai knew of an earlier plot against the Jews. We see that that takes place later in the story with Haman. Um, But we don't know why, uh, whatever the case may be, that he tells Esther this. He says, "Don't, don't make your people know, known. Don't make your history known. And that's not something that uh, a good Jew should be doing, right? You know, we're, we're to proclaim God, not, not compromise on our faith and go out and do that. And so when, when Esther hears this, she listens to Mordecai. We then see that Esther is offered food, which would certainly be against Torah regulations uh, for a Jewish woman. And she eats that. We look at the example of Daniel, who is kind of the opposite in this instance, who refused to eat meat, who refused to drink the wine that the king was offering in Babylon. So here Esther is not only hiding her heritage, she is partaking in unclean food. Um, She's compromising on this instructions of the Torah, the opposite of what she should be doing. But I just need, we, want to, we want to be reminded, Pastor Mike talked about this last week, that the story of Esther is not about Esther's morality. Esther is not made to be the moral hero of this story. That's not the point. The point is that God is working in this young woman's, young woman's situation, despite the compromises and the sin that she might have. And so regardless of Esther's moral shortcomings here, we need to focus on God's providence in this story. So in addition to God being present in Esther's situation, we also see that the Mordecai here hasn't abandoned Esther. He hasn't left her to her Persian surroundings. Each day he, he goes and he takes a walk uh, to the king's harem. He wants to see how she's doing. He remains close at hand, but ultimately he's not able to do anything in this story. And that's contrasted with God, who is able to affect the situation, who's allowed to uh, let this process of deliverance take place. So we see someone who's not able to do anything and someone who is able to do everything in in God. And so we need to remember in this that even when we are living in pain and uncertainty, we know that God is working in the background. He, he, as believers, he, he can take our heart and he chooses to use us in our situations rather than discard us and throw us to the curb. God is working in everything. And so as we continue this story, we get to this very disturbing scene of how the king's plans in the first couple verses of Esther, or the chapter, are lived out. This is verses 12 through 15. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ashwaris, after being the 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, 
six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women. And when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her into the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abigail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. When we read this section of our story, we see the process in which these young women had to go through after being taken from their family and ultimately their friends as well. They spent the first year preparing for this audience with the king. They were covered with oil of myrrh for six months, and then for another six months they had spices and ointments. And this, this process was to remove blemishes from the skin as well as soften its texture to make them as beautiful as they could possibly be. Now this year of preparation, it also surely involved training in language of how to, how to talk in the court, how to walk the royal etiquette, um, all of that stuff. That's what this year is all about. So what is the outcome of this preparation? Well, these women would go in, they would spend a night with the king in order to please him. And then as each woman went in, they were allowed to bring in whatever they wanted to, to boost their chance at winning favor with the king. Now, I want you to understand something with this passage. These women, they leave one group, they leave the one group as virgins. They spend the night with the king, and then the next, women, the next morning, they join this group of his concubines. And when they were in this group of concubines, they would wait to see if the king would call on them for another audience with him. But here's the thing. When these women, they were forcibly taken from their families and forced to go through this whole process, when they eventually ended up in this concubine harem, there was no leaving. There was no leaving. Even if these women were never called again to go visit the king, they had to remain there with the rest of the concubines for the rest of their existence. I tell you this because I want you to understand the situation that Esther found herself in. She's not looking at it from a 2023 perspective. She did not know that God would raise her up to be a queen. She did not know that God was going to use her. All that she knew was that she was in a really bad situation with seemingly no way out. It's hard. And so Esther's turn is now up. She was asked what she wants to bring to the king, and she left it up ultimately to Haggai, the king's eunuch. And she deferred to one of the people that, that would know him very well, and she allowed herself to exhibit this submission and exhibit humility. She allowed Haggai to direct her. But little did she know that, that God was working behind the scenes and placing Esther, ultimately in directing her to a position where she would be looked at favorably by all that saw her. The second instance of God being there. She was looked upon favorably for all who saw her. We are not told that God's favor was something that Esther ever prayed for. We're not even told that she prayed at all. But in fact, if, if God's blessings were placed solely on bold obedience to God, Esther, she wouldn't even live up to that. 
She was owed no favor at all. But God bestowed his favor on her daily. He does that to us too. He, des- he, he bestows his favor on those daily who did not deserve it and could never earn it. That's each of us who are sinners. Continuing the story, we see the outcome of Esther's visit. Let's read the remainder of the passage. And when Esther was taken to King Ashuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all of the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So we see here, choosing to skip certain details, the author of Esther, he gives the outcome of Esther's visit. The king was ultimately smitten by her. And he wanted her to become his queen. The author says that Esther won favor and grace in his sight. The third time that Esther has won favor amongst someone. It's another example of God's providence and deliverance from this difficult situation that Esther faced. So at this time, Esther, she was taken to be queen and wife, but as such, she was living a life that included even more compromise than what had previously been lived. She was now with a, with a husband, a wicked king, who was filled with, with selfish pride. He was a pagan. He, he sought out to defile so many people. But despite the fact of her compromise, God is still at work in her life in the midst of this difficult situation. And by ultimately having the king's favor in this, she was able to intercede later in the story for her people and avert their total destruction. Esther was the girl who was adopted. She was the girl who was then abducted. She was then the girl that, who advanced in the harem. She then became the girl who was adorned with a crown and announced as queen. And Esther, she is the girl that would ultimately save the people of God. And so when we look back on the story now from a a 2023 perspective, we tend to see a lot of sin and compromising of faith. And as much as some would like to picture Esther as a young woman without flaw or without fault, we need to recognize that she was less than perfect. Esther was among those who chose to stay in Persia rather than return to the land when it was decreed. Esther failed to tell the truth about her nationality. And when you fail to tell the truth, my mom would always tell me that that was a lie. Esther had no problem eating non-kosher foods as Daniel had. Daniel refrained from that. Esther had sexual relations with a man who was not her husband, although I will grant her the fact that that was probably not her choice. But Esther also married in violation to the Old Testament teaching where it talked about a Jew not marrying a Gentile in Deuteronomy 7. Now, I'm not trying to diminish our view of Esther in this story. She was a brave young woman in a very bad situation. But the point here is that despite the the compromising, despite the concealment, God still used Esther to deliver a nation. I bring up her faults in order for us to recognize that even our own mistakes and our sin, it cannot derail the providence of God. 
That is what the story of Esther is all about, how God works behind the scenes to, to further his plan and his deliverance. And that is true for us today. God is still working in each of our lives. Despite our sin, despite the shame that we might feel because of that sin, despite the compromise that we have had in the past, God is still there working. There is hope for all of us who find ourselves in difficult situations. The Apostle Paul, he, he speaks to this when he writes in 1 Timothy 1, uh, verses 13 through 15. He says this, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, whom I am the foremost. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter the shame you might feel, you are forgiven when you come and you kneel at the foot of the cross. God forgives your sin. God can and still will use you to accomplish his plans. He will help you accomplish the purpose for what he has made you for. Perhaps that's why we're here today. Perhaps that's why God has placed you in the situations that you're in. So, you know, he he can use us to serve him in such a unique way. It doesn't make those wrong decisions and sinful actions of our past right, but it should cause us to give thanks to God because he is able to form an amazing and beautiful picture out of our stained and out of our smudged past. Our past failures do not write us out of being a significant part of God's plan. It's a beautiful thing. Despite our past sin, despite our past compromise, God is using you. He will still use you. We are not perfect, but God's plan is. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for all of the blessings that you have given us here today. I pray that you would continue to work in our lives even when we don't realize it. Father, I ask that you will deliver us from our sin and that you will deliver us from our shame. And you will allow us to walk with you each day. I pray that we are able to surrender our pride and our desires, and that we lay them down at the foot of the cross. Continue to change us. Renew our minds and our hearts each day, so that we can continue to strive after you. Remind us daily of your great love for us. Father, I just also lift up this offering that we're about to take here today. May we give with no expectation of anything in return and for no other motive than to glorify you and to build up your church. We ask all of these things in the, in the most holy name of your son, Jesus Christ, the king of everything. Amen.